Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to Lost in Science. My name is Claire and it is the first show of 2021 um, and the first of our summer series of Lost in Science. So thank you very much for joining us. In this summer series, we are going to take you back to some of our top and favorite science stories that we brought you in 2020 while we're all on holiday or at least you know, some sort of semblance of holiday. Today, we have two stories for you, and they're actually quite topical still. First up, we have a story from last year from Stu, all about the weather patterns of El Nino and La Nina. Now, just a disclaimer about this story. It was recorded in July last year. So um, Stu does make reference to the fact that we are in an El Nino pattern. Uh, But dear listeners, by the end of September in 2020, the Bureau of Meteorology had declared that uh, we were no longer in El Nino, we were in La Nina spring and summer, which, of course, if you are on the east coast of Australia, you may have noticed as it has been raining and flooding a lot. Uh, So a special shout out to the communities around Australia who have been dealing with the floods and the cyclone and uh, the intense rain over the December and January period. Now, the second story we are bringing up from the archive is a story which, um, unfortunately, I have to say, is still very relevant today. Um, It is an interview that I did last year with biomedical engineer Professor Sandra Kentish from the University of Melbourne. Um, So Sandra gives us a materials engineer's point of view of how to effectively make your own face mask and why face masks are so effective against COVID-19. So I thought I'd put this one in because if you're in the greater Sydney region right now, uh, masks have just become mandatory. So um, you might want to stay tuned for that one or maybe for everybody else, you know, maybe you're like me, maybe not. Um, If you are, you're stuck indoors for 14 days of home quarantine and you might need a new craft activity. So that's what I'm going to be doing. I'm dragging the sewing machine out and going to be making some face masks for later on once I get to go out into the world. Well, either way, um, it's worth a listen. So without any further ado, Bring on the summer series with Locked in Science and our first show of 2021. So did you know that I'm trying to learn Spanish? No, I did not know that. That is a very noble isolation goal, Stu? Well, actually, yeah, I actually started last year and and I can say some things in Spanish. I can say, quiero hablar, leer 
eh, escribir en español. That means I want to speak, read, and write in Spanish. Oh, that sounds So I haven't been able to go to any classes face-to-face, obviously, for very plain reasons. Um, but I've been trying to learn online, and I was actually surprised how many words in Spanish were pretty familiar already. Um, oh, yeah? You know, well, there's, you know, there's things like banana. Banana is a banana in Spanish as, okay. as it is in English. You know, there's, there's a lot of words you can figure out as well, like familia yeah. is family. Yeah, sure. The most obvious one that I knew without knowing I knew, well, kind of, was El Nino and La Nina, which right. is yeah. the boy and the girl. So I first heard of El Nino and La Nina in the 1980s studying science in high school. Um, And we have picked up these terms for what is a massive global weather pattern that affects Australia, but also large parts of South America. So in... um, In South America, Spanish is a language spoken in many South American countries, and they first noticed this cyclic weather pattern that brings very dry years and much wetter years to to their continent, but also to ours, Um, but in reverse. So we've picked up these names for La Nina, which is the wetter part of this weather cycle, and El Nino for the periods which are dry. And that's what we're in right now is this El Nino period. So large parts of Australia are very dry, naturally. They just get very, very little rainfall. Um, And some years they get almost no rain at all, especially in the inland areas away from the coast. Um, But a lot of our farmland in Australia is actually bordering onto those dry areas. Mm. Um. And most of the farming that happens in Australia is what is known as dryland agriculture, which okay. is to say... That it's not irrigated, is that...? Yeah, that's basically it. It, right. it relies solely on the rainfall mm. to, to grow the crops or to grow the pasture that the animals eat and then they are the product. But um, it does really require this kind of agricultural system to understand when the rains are likely to come in a particular location so you can plant your seeds at the right time and get them Mm -hmm. to grow over the year. So it is very important to know, um, you know, what part of the year is wetter and what part is drier. And that's why one of, you know, the the Bureau of Meteorology in Australia is one of the oldest scientific organisations we have because it's so important to be able to guess what the weather's going to do next. Mm. Um, So El Nino and La Nina are part of a system which is known scientifically as the El Nino Southern Oscillation, or ENSO. El Nino Southern Oscillation. Yeah, the El Nino Southern Oscillation. So that name suggests that it's the southern part of the Pacific and it's an okay. oscillation, which is like a swinging pendulum back and forth across right. the Pacific. And okay. it takes around about 10 years or so, but it's not that precise. It's not, you, could, you can't okay. set your watch to it or your, <laughs> or your pendulum clock to it. 
Right. It takes 10 years or so to oscillate between the between That's the right. Two. That's right. So the weather cycles in this uh, southern oscillation are driven by ocean temperatures. So if you measure the temperature of the ocean at the surface and in the depths of the ocean, you can have some idea of what part of the cycle it's actually in, what part yeah. of the oscillation we're going through. Right. So during El Nino... Uh, more water evaporates out of the ocean much closer to South America. So that part of the ocean is a lot warmer, over way over the other side of the Pacific okay. to Australia. And that means the water evaporates there. It cools down as it rises up into the atmosphere and then drops mm-hmm. as rain, but it just drops over the ocean. Ah, sort doesn't, of... Doesn't help anyone, really. Yeah, it's sort of a bit disappointing. Yeah. Um, and at the other end of the oscillation during the la nina periods the ocean is warmer closer to australia Mm. so water evaporates right off our coast and it falls onto the landmass of the continent so we get lots of rain right so So when they talk about el nino you know um, being typified by long spells of dryness and drought it's not that that water isn't falling anywhere. It's just falling. It's just not falling on Australia. It's falling somewhere in the ocean. Yeah, um, or over South a, America. Or over South America. Yeah. Um, so during there's also these neutral periods where the cycle's just doing its thing. We might get a bit of rain. South America might get a bit of rain. It's neither El Nino or La Nina. It's just what they call the neutral um, phase of this oscillation and there's also other weather systems based again usually on the temperature of the ocean which also bring rain over the continent of australia so it's not the only thing that gives us rain but on the east coast of australia it's the most important system that brings rain to large parts of the country so one of those parts of the country is the murray darling basin which is a huge part of southern queensland New South Wales and um, parts of northern Victoria, which is a massively important farming area for Australia. A huge amount of farmland, very high proportion, is in that Murray-Darling Basin. So in 2017, 2018 and 2019, they've had the longest period of below average rainfall since 1900. So almost 120 years of records and this is the lowest rainfall they've had since 120 years ago basically so it's that's, kind of that's yeah that's disturbing for you know for a lot of reasons environmental factors but as you were saying as well that um the fact that a lot of farmers rely on rain falling on their crops or their pastures to be able to make a livelihood yeah that's right and and if you don't get if you don't get a harvest for 3 years um, the bank manager gets quite upset and starts coming, knocking on the door. The Bureau of Meteorology might have some good news for farmers in the Murray-Darling. They have issued a La Nina watch, which means that the likelihood of a La Nina event is increasing. So it's not a guarantee that it's definitely going to rain. Um, there's no way to really do that with weather patterns because they are so chaotic. But measurements of ocean temperatures in the Pacific nearer to Australia's coast 
mean that the Bureau thinks it's more likely than not that more rain is on the way in the next year, which is very good news. That's very good news. Um, It's effectively a doubling of the chance that La Nina conditions will develop this year, which means higher rainfall, but it also might mean some potential danger developing as well. So the La Nina cycles do bring higher rainfall to Australia. Yeah. But they also increase the risk of cyclones and okay. flooding. There's always, <laughs> There's always a downside. A flip side, isn't there? <laughs> That's right. And especially side. especially with weather, it's always the extremes. It never yes. rains but it pours. It's, you know, a very yeah. old expression. Well, that's exactly what La Nina is. It will be howling winds and rain potentially as well as this rain that uh, that it may bring, especially in the northern parts of the country where they do where they are susceptible to cyclonic activity. So these gigantic weather patterns are all very chaotic and the ENSO system interacts with other weather systems to the north of where the southern oscillation is. There's other weather patterns in the northern parts of the Pacific. There's weather patterns in the southern part of the Pacific and into the Antarctic Ocean. There's weather patterns in the Indian Ocean, which affect, and they all interact, and it's all very chaotic and very unpredictable. And also, on top of that, we've got the effects of climate change changing the patterns of these uh, these giant weather patterns as well, because if if these weather patterns are driven by the temperature of the ocean, then any increase or decrease in the temperature of the ocean is going to affect those weather patterns. And the increase, which is what's been measured over the last sort of 10 to 20 years, is going to have an effect on these weather patterns. So whether that will make parts of the country wetter or drier, we don't really know yet because we don't mm. know how these cycles are going to play out in the future. Yeah. So there's two levels of advice the Bureau of Meteorology can issue above their watch notification. So at the moment we're at a watch. It's a La Nina watch. The next level is a La Nina alert. And then on top of that is we're in a La Nina event, which means the rain is basically here and we can see it happening. Hearing the rain on your roof. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 not much of a, not much of a notification. It's like, right. hey, it's raining. Yeah, okay. It's like, I'll look hey, out the window, look out the window everyone. Yeah. <laughs> um, but look, you know, it's 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 a little bit of good news for those parts of the country that are being drought affected at the moment. There's been a little bit of rain in parts of uh, the east coast, but this is some good news that hopefully some rains on the way. Fingers crossed the people who need it get enough rain to end the drought, um, but that the pendulum doesn't swing too far the other way and deliver more water than anyone can use in those places as well. As community transmission in Melbourne and Mitchell Shire continue and New South Wales experiences their own outbreaks, there is a changing tide on the importance of wearing a mask to protect ourselves, especially with reports of around 35% of COVID-19 cases being asymptomatic. In fact, the Victorian government now recommends wearing a cloth mask or surgical mask when you leave the house and it's difficult to maintain social distance. 
To talk to us about the science of materials and how to best make and use masks, we're joined by Professor Sandra Kentish, who is the head of the School of Chemical and Biomedical Engineering at the University of Melbourne. Sandra, welcome to Lost in Science. Tell me, what makes a mask effective? Uh, Well, there's two aspects to that. Firstly, uh, and probably most importantly, it needs to fit well to your face because if it's got lots of leaks around the edges, then uh, air's going to get in and out through that space. And that means that you're less protected from the air that uh, you're breathing in. When you have made your own mask or you're wearing a surgical mask that you don't touch the front, so when you put it on, you put it on by the ear loops or by the straps, and when you take it off, you do that. Again, keeping in mind that you don't want to contaminate the front of the mask. But the other aspect is obviously the the, 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 the mask itself, and obviously you want that to be able to prevent the transmission of small particles and droplets from the outside air into uh, your breathing zone and vice versa. Um, and probably the most important aspect there is it used to, needs to be made from multiple layers of material. So a right. single layer right. is a lot less effective than two or three layers, simply because if you can imagine the layers of fabric don't sit in exactly the same space. Uh, so you'll get a much better uh, protection if you have those multiple layers um, in the in the mask so at least two layers the uh the victorian health department are recommending three which is probably just as good uh or is good Uh, you don't want to go too far beyond that because the other important thing is that you've got to be able to breathe through this mask and if you have eliminated those gaps so that you are physically breathing through this then you don't want to become so uncomfortable that you take it off after 10 minutes. Um, So, I mean, that's fine if that's all you need it for. But if you're going to be wearing this mask for a number of hours, uh, then you need to make sure that you can breathe comfortably through it. So if you've got eight layers, for instance, then you're going to get to a point where it's going to become difficult to breathe through it. So there's a balance there. And when we're talking about materials, what, in general, what sort of materials are used and, and why? So the first thing is you want a reasonably tight weave. So if you're making it from uh, materials at home, cotton T-shirts are good, bed sheets are good because they have a a fairly tight weave to them. Um, The other aspect, again, the Department of Health is saying and is uh, when you look at the way surgical masks are constructed, uh, they tend to have the outer layer being hydrophobic or water repelling because the droplets that other people are producing, you want them to not be absorbed into the mask. You don't want to pick up virus from other uh, people. You want to limit the amount that that occurs. So um, having a hydrophobic layer on the outside and similarly having a water-absorbing layer on the inside because you are breathing out uh, water droplets yourself and again what will make this one of the things that will make this mask difficult over a period of time is that absorption of water vapor uh, from your breath so you don't want uh, big droplets of water retained on the inside so there's an argument for using those types of materials uh, when you construct the mask and there's scientific Uh, articles out there talking about the different materials but I think you've got to be careful about getting hung up on getting a specific type of material because the evidence between having one type versus another is is not huge I think the important thing is to have two or three layers of material 
um, and then having a good fit to the face uh, that minimises the amounts of gaps and it's that it's comfortable so that you can wear it without fiddling with it because whenever you touch it, you're potentially exposing yourself to the virus that's been caught by the mask. So you want something that sits comfortably on your face that you can happily wear without adjusting it all the time. So how often should we be washing our homemade masks um, or changing them even? So ideally you need to wash them every time after every use. So uh, you shouldn't be using them more than once because the whole idea of the mask is to uh, hold the virus particles uh, on the outer surface and stop them getting in. Uh, so you, you just, as soon as you take it off, you should be washing it. Um, if you do need to take it off during the day, again, the Department of Health is suggesting you put it in a plastic bag while you're eating lunch or something. But throw it in the washing machine at the end of the day. So if you're going to make one, you know, probably you need five or six if you're going to wear one every day of the week. Uh, you wash it every day. You can throw it in the washing machine with other clothes. As long as you use a reasonably hot wash, you will kill any virus that's around. The only other comment I'd make about the washing is if you have washed it, um, another protection is then to either put it in a clothes dryer or put it on the uh, clothes line outside. Ultraviolet light is very good at killing the virus, so putting it on an outside clothes line is very effective at further reducing the impact. And either of those approaches are probably better than perhaps putting it on your heater uh, in the house because, again, that's bug uh, growing temperatures. Um, so you, know, you, want to, you want to avoid sort of moist air at sort of 40 degrees C because that's bug growing temperature. You want to put it in a dryer that's higher temperature or put it on the clothesline outside. And is there any special place that people can be accessing materials to make a homemade mask? Or um, like you said, is it is it more just, you know, things they might have that are already at home, like sheets um, or T-shirts that can be worked up into sort of three layers to make the mask? Yeah, I mean, that's my advice. Again, if the Department of Health has some very specific advice about what types of materials, but, uh, yeah, you, sh you can go to any uh, clothing-type shop and buy scraps of material, but any, any material you've got hanging around the house is likely to be effective. Uh, again, just aiming for something that's got that fairly tight weave to it uh, so that, um, you know, you, you're getting some trapping of the particles. And, again, two or three layers um, so that you get that effect. And is there any new research that's coming out? Because I imagine, you know, people around the world have been wearing masks for longer than Australians have um, up until now. So is there any research coming out about how to make masks, I guess, more um, effective at protecting us, more safe, um, that we should be taking on board? Well, for, the first thing I comment is it's interesting. There was a lot of work being done on this about the time of the uh, SARS virus about 10 years ago. And when you read all the scientific literature, it got to a certain point and then stopped because SARS went away. Uh, and there's suddenly this big rush of new articles, uh, essentially a lot of them replicating what went on uh, <laughs> back then. So the ones I'm seeing at the moment aren't really all that illuminating compared to... Uh, with the published literature from quite a while ago. I mean, again, you say masks have been worn for uh, many decades for this type of purpose. Um, and, uh, again, the COVID virus is like any other virus. So, again, the, the, the technology is essentially unchanged from where we were. 
uh, a lot of the research I've been looking at is more related at the moment also to the situation in places like the US where the supplies are so tight that people are reusing single-use masks, which is not something we're recommending in Australia. Uh, and so if you, uh, you can't put single-use masks uh, in the washing machine, uh, so there has to be more elaborate attempts to restore their um, sanitation or sanitation, sanitary levels. Just on that, I guess, um, in terms of the single-use surgical masks that you see around a lot, do we still have, you know, is, is there enough of them to go around? Do we, do you know whether we've, we've got manufacturing available to allow for the production of those type of masks? Well, that's not my area of expertise, but if you read the newspaper, then yes, the Victorian government is saying they have uh, significant supplies and they're ordering more from local manufacturers. So I know there's a local manufacturer who's in Shepparton who's producing masks uh, locally. So, yeah, my understanding is there is plenty. I would just add the comment that, again, is the government is making is that there's this quite a, a distinct distinction between standard surgical masks, which... Uh, you know, uh, the public are welcome to wear if they can access them. But the N95 masks are much more difficult to make uh, and those need to be retained for the healthcare workers and we should not be trying to uh, access those from within Australia or internationally because they really should be retained for the healthcare workers. Just to clarify that distinction between the N95 and the surgical masks. Yeah. There isn't a huge difference in the filtration efficiency. The, the N95 is slightly better, but the main difference is the N95 is designed to give you a very tight fit to your face. So it will actually uh, be able to prevent any gaps. Um, and so the N95 mask is a single-use mask that is specifically designed so it gives you that tight fit. Um, and that's got uh, various regulatory approvals that it does that. So it actually presents, you know, 95%. It's called an N95 mask because it prevents 95% of particles of 0.3 micron from uh, reaching your airways. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Lost in Science today, Sandra, and giving your insights into how to engineer a mask to help keep yourself and the community safe. all we have time for on uh, the first episode of 2021 of Locked in Science. We're still locked in. Uh, It's just a new year. (laughs) Locked in Science is normally recorded in the studios of 3CR on the lands of the Kulin Nation with the kind of support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. 
in 2021, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at lostinsight at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter where we are Lost in Science 1 or find us on Facebook where we are Lost in Science on 3CR. Um, or you can always just tune in again next week when Claire, Stu and Chris get Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.